From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Smog in the summer is a chronic problem here. State lawmakers have a new plan to clear the air. The Oil and Gas Association says it would end fossil fuel production in this state. A $48 billion industry without regard to the livelihoods of the hundreds of thousands of Colorado families who depend on it. We'll break it down with our climate team. Then, no matter what social media tells you, there's no such thing as the perfect parent. All parents for millennia have had some shame that they might harm their child in some way, but it's exponentially grown in terms of what today's parents are experiencing. Being a good enough parent, one who loses their cool from time to time. Strong attachment comes out of having discord and then repairing discord. My name is Jennifer Greenfield, and I'm a member of Colorado Public Radio. One of the reasons I love listening to Colorado Matters is that I often listen in on conversations with people I'd love to talk to. And often the question that I'm dying to ask gets asked, um, and so I get the answer that I need. I really look forward to those conversations. Become a member today. It's easy to pledge online at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado just cannot shake its ozone problem. The dangerous pollutant settles into our biggest cities each summer, triggering asthma attacks and driving up hospital visits. It is especially rough along the Front Range, which hasn't met federal clean air standards in almost two decades. Well, now, State House Democrats have a new package to tackle the problem. CPR climate reporter Sam Brash is here to explain what's in it and why it faces an uphill battle at the state capitol. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ryan. What does this plan to clean up ozone, a.k.a. smog, entail? So it's a laundry list of policies, but if you zoom out, it's really focused on the largest source of smog-forming pollutants along the Front Range, and that's the oil and gas industry. Rashad Younger is the vice president of the Rocky Mountain chapter of the NAACP. He was among dozens of environmental and social justice advocates at a press conference announcing this package, and he called out the state for continuing to approve new oil and gas wells, even though oil and gas production adds to this ozone problem. I cannot help but ask why continue to grant permits to pollute at a time when our communities are suffering? Why do our state agencies look the other way when corporate polluters choose to violate air quality laws again and again? He then praised lawmakers for introducing a bill to overhaul how the state hands out new drilling permits. And how would that work, Sam? So right now, operators just need approval from state oil and gas regulators to start digging a new well. Under this legislation, oil and gas companies would first need to win permits from health officials tasked with protecting air quality. Representative Jennifer Bacon is a Denver Democrat sponsoring that bill, and here's how she explained it. If you cannot demonstrate that you can operate within an amount that will not contribute further, because let's be honest with the harm we've experienced, then you can't do it. Period. And that's just the beginning of restrictions aimed at the fossil fuel industry. Okay, what else is in the package? So another bill would ban all drilling and fracking during Colorado's summertime ozone season unless a company relies on clean electric engines. It also expands the ozone season from three months to five months. Okay, electric engines that 
drive the drilling. Exactly. Okay. Like right now they rely on these massive diesel or gas engines and that's the source of so much pollution. So if you use an electric engine, you're okay to, to drill during the summer. And then expanding the ozone season, would that mean no drilling allowed for like almost half the year? Yeah, that's right. And a third bill would set a far stricter penalty if a company like say Suncor Energy violates its air pollution permits. Now that Canadian company releases illegal amounts of pollution dozens of times a year from its refinery in Commerce City. It usually pays only a few million dollars in direct fines every few years to settle those potential violations. That's just a tiny portion of its annual profits. So under another piece of legislation, regulators could pursue far more frequent and punitive penalties. And if they don't do that, regular citizens could sue those companies themselves to follow through with enforcement that regulators could have enacted. Okay. So in a way, all of us could become enforcers. Right. Is it fair to assume the oil and gas industry plans to fight this legislation? (laughs) They do. In fact, they didn't waste any time. Uh, The Colorado Oil and Gas Association and the American Petroleum Institute held its own press conference hours after lawmakers announced this package last week. Dan Haley is the CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, and here's how he explains the new air quality package, plus a separate bill to start phasing out new drilling permits by 2030. These bills seek to end the oil and natural gas industry in Colorado and upend a $48 billion industry without regard to the livelihoods of the hundreds of thousands of Colorado families and communities who depend on it. He says his industry will use every tool it can to fight these bills, which he actually doesn't think would do much to fix Colorado's smog problem. That's because he says his industry doesn't pollute nearly as much as clean air advocates would have you believe, and that, you know, fossil fuel industries are already lobbying hard to defeat these proposed bills. Well, it seems like there's a basic scientific disagreement then behind this political battle. Can you break that down for us? Is... I mean, you started by saying this. Is oil and gas the leading cause of smog or is it something else? Yeah, let's back up a little bit. So ozone's a really complicated problem. That's because it's not coming from some smokestack or tailpipe somewhere. It forms in two other categories of pollutants. Those are nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds react in the atmosphere amid heat and sunlight. Uh, Then that adds up on so-called background ozone. This is ozone that travels into Colorado from other states and country, and that accounts for two-thirds of the problem along the Front Range each summer. Not to mention that the Front Range's geography and weather pattern is perfect for further ozone formation. Okay, so I guess I hear that only a portion of the problem perhaps is within our local control. That's right, but if you look at that portion, it's clear that oil and gas is the biggest piece of it. So there's a state inventory that shows the largest sources of both those primary ozone ingredients, nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds, within the Front Range. And it shows that oil and gas operations are the largest source of those ingredients. Independent studies have also confirmed drilling activities are often what pushes our air pollution levels beyond those federal standards. Okay. Uh, If that's the case, do you think Colorado lawmakers can get this bill across the finish line? You know, and I think it's going to be easy. That's because lawmakers don't just face a full court press from the oil and gas industry. Governor Jared Polis has set his own goal to cut smog ingredients from oil and gas operations 50 percent by 2030. In a statement to me, a spokesperson for the governor's office said he's focused on, you know, passing those rules to attain that goal and hasn't reviewed or been involved in any of this 
legislation. You know, I think that's a hint the governor might prefer a more careful approach, one that doesn't try to take such a big hammer to the industry. And it's worth noting, Democratic lawmakers backing these bills say they did not consult with the governor's office either when they were drafting this legislation. So it's hard to know for sure, but I think all of this could be a sign that there could be trouble ahead. I know you'll keep us up to date. Thanks for being here, Sam. My pleasure. Thank you. Sam Brash covers climate and the environment for CPR News, outlining a new legislative package to curtail ozone pollution and the fight over it. After a break, taking some of the shame out of parenting. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When it comes to prosecuting hate crimes, Colorado didn't have a great track record. Did you just call me a In this bonus episode of Systemic, we look at how two women tested Colorado bias motivated crime statute. Look for Systemic from Colorado Public Radio everywhere you listen. If the perfect mom or dad keeps showing up in your social media feed, making you feel like less than a perfect parent, our guest has some thoughts. Craig Nippenberg is a child and family therapist in Denver. His new book is Shame-Free Parenting, Building Resiliency in Times of Hardship, Guns, and Social Media. And Craig, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on, Ryan. It's always a joy. I guess as someone who carries around a fair amount of shame, that word stood out to me in the title of your book. Why do you think there's so much shame associated with parenting? Well, parenting has always had that. I think all parents for millennia have had some bit of guilt or shame that they're not doing it correctly or they might harm their child in some way. But it's exponentially grown in terms of what today's parents are experiencing. So Pew Research Center had a study about today's parents are spending more money on their kids and more time than they ever have. But they feel pressured to do more. And then you throw in the social media perfect parents, which, by the way, perfect parent is an oxymoron that doesn't exist. (laughs) Um, It's not possible, nor would you want to be. But that puts even more stress and sort of the whole judgment against other parents or they're not doing it the right way or it's just nonstop. And and that's a function of comparing yourself to other parents because of social media. I think you call them mom fluencers. Yes. In fact, fortunately, I just read recently that there's a new brand of influencers and they're not perfectly dressed up. They don't look, you know, like perfection as they're espousing these false myths about parenting. And it's real life mom influencers, one of whom has had over a million views and she's in her messy house and in the same clothes she's been wearing and she's just a regular mom. I decided to get ready before my toddler woke up today, and wow, it was a complete game changer. I don't know why I haven't been doing this. And that's the trend I hope we start to see more of, because over the last couple of years, it's all the perfect parent syndrome. And Craig, you write about good enough <laughs> parents. Right. We've established there's no such thing as perfect parenting. What are good enough parents? Let's take an example. So we know in the research, that if you're inconsistent as a parent with your rules around the house, the children are gonna have behavior issues. You have to structure the children. And I used to say, you know, if you can do that 80% of the time, Mm -hmm. so let's say your kid 
left their number 13 size smelly tennis shoes out in the living room and they're supposed to be in his room. 80% of the time you march the young man out, get your shoes out of here. 20% of the time you just do it yourself because you're so tired and you don't want to argue with your kid again. And if you've got a preschooler trying to pick up their toys, you know what I'm talking about. But with COVID, I kind of redefined it and said, just go for 60%. And if you've got preschoolers, teenagers, 51% is good enough. Hmm. What that's based on is that if your kid has an adequate environment, like a road, an adequate road to travel on, and you're a good enough parent shepherding their car down the road, their genetic trajectory is going to take them where they're going to go. There is no research that you could do anything much more than that that would make a difference and your child would all of a sudden be admitted to Stanford or they'd have this fabulous career. It's all pretty much genetic after you have a good enough environment and you can get through modern culture issues, they're, they're going to turn out to be who they're going to be. Wow, there's something comforting about that idea. And well, <laughs> it's so funny to me that we are calling for adequate because there has been such a culture, and I think this is true of my childhood, of the child needing to excel. And maybe the parent feels that as well. Yeah, yeah. And they're often pushing that on their kid. They need to do all these extra things, you know, get ready for testing, get your application all perfect so you can go to these different schools. And that was not there when I was a kid. We were given lots of independence. And then you learn to be independent. So one of the issues that I can concern about is the kids are so dependent on their parents through their cell phones. So anytime they have an issue come up, they immediately call mom or dad to, to bail them out instead of really learning how to problem solve for themselves or with their peers versus just immediately reaching out to the parents. Hmm. Welcome to my relationship with my mother even today. But OK, Craig, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel I don't feel too called out here. Is now, it... There is one thing, yeah. if I could just mention. In the research, they've only found one thing that you could pass on to your kids that would last them the rest of their life. The one thing they found is parental kindness. If parents are kind people, they're kind to the neighbors, they're kind to the grocery workers, they're kind to the people at the restaurant, that your kids will pick up on that and they too will become kind adults and will last for their lifetime. Well, that makes me wonder how worried a parent should be when they fly off the handle at their kid. Yes. Now, and that is, so the first chapter in my book, it's okay to lose your blank sometimes. <laughs> that it's okay to yell at your kid sometimes because the modern momfluencers are talking about never yell at your child. You'll hurt your attachment. And all these myths that are not true at all. For one, strong attachment comes out of having discord and then repairing discord. But the other issue is you have to think of your family's journey and your child's journey through life. It's like this giant stained glass window, and it's full of all these parenting moments you're having with your kid. And a little piece of glass because you yelled at your child, sure, that doesn't feel good, but that one piece of glass is not going to change your child's trajectory. I also think it's so powerful when a parent can say to a child, I was wrong. 
I I have harmed you. That in and of itself is a good demonstration of behavior, right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. It's showing that none of us are perfect. So you've talked about a pandemic of fragility among kids. Yeah, yeah. Will you explain what you mean by pandemic of fragility? Basically, we know pre-COVID, that so mental health rates in teens of depression and anxiety, it's always kind of hovered around 18% every decade. And then there was this big increase. Colorado has had some of the highest rates in teen anxiety and depression. And that was during sort of the 2010s. And most people were theorizing, well, that was social media and this hysteria about getting into the perfect college and all this academic stress on the kids. Mm-hmm. Well, then COVID comes, the rates go up even higher. Now, at some point, I'm hoping those rates will come down, but they're still pretty high. And all mental health practitioners are overwhelmed with, with teens, and they just seem to be so fragile. And I think it's the long-term impact of COVID on them just the stress of COVID, the plethora of time they spent on social media, and in my own opinion, the ongoing scourge of school shootings, of just mass shootings in our country. And last spring, a couple of second graders wanted to talk to me about that they heard there was a man coming to their school with a gun and he was gonna shoot them all. And then they started asking me, what do they do if they're locked out of the room or if their teacher gets shot? That trickles down to little ones. Second graders, did you say? Yes, yes. That particular one was at East High School, but then everything trickles down on the playground. And so maybe a sixth grader hears about it, and maybe they have a third grade sibling, and they're talking to their parents. Now the third grader picks up little bits of it, and they're sharing that on the playground too. Is it fair to call the kids fragile? I don't when, consider the kids fragile. Uh-huh. I don't think it's their, it's not their fault. Yeah, it strikes me that. that yeah, yeah I, I stri- thought about that when I used that phrase, but I do not believe they're, I see kids the same way I always have. I see some really resilient children and teens thrive and overcome lots of adversity, being very resilient. But I think with the cultural issues we have with COVID, we, we have made them fragile. It's like they, they're not able to handle things and are just overwhelmed by it all. Yeah, because it did occur to me that it is it that the kids are fragile or is it that the environment they're in is so harsh in many ways it, that no one brutal. no one could help but be fragile in right. a society where shooting up a school is the norm? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, okay, in the face of a culture of violence, of firearms. This is where I always struggle as a host, a journalist, when we have conversations about how to talk to your kids. It's not right to imbue them with a sense of false safety. What's the approach then? So statistically, many gun deaths are Mm self-inflicted, right? And also that, and I always talk about this with the kids, but it gets harder every year is that school statistically is the safest place you can be as a child. So far more children are injured at home or in the community than they are at school. Okay. So their schools have lots of adults. Now we all got fences and security cameras. 
there's eyes on the, the children all the time. Even at recess, there's playground eyes. There's people keeping an eye on you. So you want the kids to feel this sense of internal safety. But at the same time, we keep getting these attacks on children in schools. So you, it's a mix. You have to inform them of some of this at an age-appropriate level. And then give them kind of, yes, these things are possible. The risk is very low. And this is what we're doing to keep you safe. But those fears are so big that teens are now wanting their parents to track their iPhones because they're afraid they'll be in a shooting somewhere. And they want their parents to know where they are, where to find them. Now, the teens, their brains are designed to move away from the parents and, and get your life going and go into adulthood. You don't want your parents tracking you, but now they're actually wanting it because they're afraid. Well, you mentioned cell phones and I, I'm desperate to ask you about them. If you had your druthers, is there an age at which you'd give a kid a cell phone? And Well, the age we did with our daughter, we were going to do sixth grade, like all the other parents, with a smartphone. After seeing what was going on with her classmates, we decided that she would have a flip phone. Mm-hmm. She was none too happy about it, and she got a smartphone when she started high school. And I really like there's a support group nationwide called Wait Till Eighth. And it's about you wait till eighth or ninth, ninth grade to give them a smartphone. And what, what is it about eighth grade that feels magic to you about smartphones? You're waiting for brain maturity. All children are different. Yeah. And some can handle things earlier than others. And so it's partly based on your individual child. Overall, middle school is that early phase of puberty. And the brain is incredibly vulnerable during that phase of development. It has twice the emotional output as it did when you're in elementary school, a very similar to a preschooler's emotional output, and it has half the self-control. Now, the other big piece that kicks up at puberty is what's called your nonverbal system. And that's the part of your brain that knows how to connect with friends, how to make friends, how to influence others, how to be part of the group. That all is just exploding in their brains. Hmm. So the idea is that we are syncing up smartphone privileges with brain chemistry, with brain yes. development. Uh-huh. With their brain development. Okay. Craig, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ryan. Always just enjoyable. Craig Nippenberg of Denver has written Shame-Free Parenting, Building Resiliency in Times of Hardship, guns, and social media. We spoke in December. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Terra Firma, the podcast that brings you sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman, is back. Now more than ever, we need to find ourselves on Terra Firma, touching the ground, listening to the beings, remembering who we are and where we come from. Find Terra Firma from Colorado Public Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. People with sickle cell disease have some new hope. The FDA has approved two gene editing therapies, the first new treatments in 30 years. Clinical trials have shown the potential to stop pain completely. But there are side effects and a hefty price tag. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie spoke with Nathan Heffel. 
you're going to introduce us to some folks connected to these trials. But first, how big of a deal is this? Nathan, this is a really, really, really big deal because for the longest time, there haven't been any new developments in treatment. And now these new gene therapies can take somebody from living with pain on a daily basis to being pain-free. And for those who might not know, what exactly is sickle cell disease? So it's a disease that people are born with where their hemoglobin is shaped differently from other people's. The blood cells are shaped kind of like a a crescent, like a C-shape. And so because they're shaped that way, when they try to move through the body, they often get stuck. And that causes a lot of pain. And the pain can be so severe that people end up in the ER and the hospital, sometimes for weeks at a time. It affects several hundred people here in Colorado. Most of them are black. And nationwide, there are about 100,000 people who are affected by it. One of them is Xavius Himes. He says having sickle cell disease wasn't so bad when he was a kid growing up in Little Rock, Arkansas. But the pain caused by the disease got worse by the time he was in college. And like all that excruciating pain that you could imagine that you would feel from sometimes maybe two weeks or I'll spend like a week and a half in the hospital two weeks and then getting out, you still have to recover. So that's probably like another week of missing like class. So the 28-year-old looked for a solution and found Dr. Chris McKinney. The hematologist was doing clinical trials at Children's Hospital in Aurora. And it turned out Himes was a match for the trial. So first there was a lot of testing. Then once we were certain that I could, I became a little more hopeful (laughs) in the journey. That meant traveling here and staying for months to do the complicated procedure. His bone marrow was collected and sent off for editing. That's when they removed the gene that caused him to create those sickle-shaped blood cells. Then... To have my edited genes put back into my body. And that's when I would have the chemo and have to stay in hospital for the extended period of time. The transplant was in February of 2023. At this point, I haven't had any crisis since I've had the stem cell transplant. But after, it was a total like change in my energy level and how I was able to just go about life. The new FDA-approved treatments are slightly different from what Himes received, but they work the same way. Edit cells, then return them to the body. Lay down it so I can feel your belly. A few weeks after the FDA announcement, Dr. McKinney meets with another patient. Mia Hilton is an upbeat 20-year-old esthetician from Denver. No belly pain today. Okay. He eases into a conversation about the new treatment. Have you heard about the uh, recently approved gene therapies for patients with sickle cell disease? So I've heard a little bit about it, but not too, too much. He explains the gene editing therapy and that the procedure takes a few months. And maybe for Hilton, it could be worth it. She gets leg pain that feels like it's stabbing her. She's gone to the ER, she's been hospitalized for up to a week at a time, and sometimes she has to take IV meds that are so heavy she can't drive. I feel like in the long run it could really help because having sickle cell, if you're not on top of it and you're not maintaining it, it can really slow you down. Dr. McKinney also cautions her on the chemo that's a part of it. Side effects of chemotherapy include hair loss, Mm Um, it can include sores in your mouth, which can be quite painful for the several weeks that you're in the hospital. It can also result in infertility. Personally, I don't want kids anyway, so that is a free form of birth control. I'm very into makeup and hair. I already have like 40 wigs in my closet, so it wouldn't be too different 
Like, it would just be like, oh, new wig, oh, pink wig, red wig, you know? As for the painful sores she could get in her mouth. So I bite my jaws a lot. <laughs> so I'm already, I'm already there. I'm already there. I actually bit my tongue and my jaw four times in the elevator on the way up here. So I think it's not going to affect me too much. Although the side effects don't bother Mia, the cost could. One therapy is $2 million, the other $3 million. Dr. David Rind is with the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. That's a nonprofit that evaluates the prices and effectiveness of medications. I don't think any manufacturer would charge a price like that, thinking that only the patients who could afford it themselves would get it. The assumption is that insurance will cover this. Rind explains that sickle cell evolved in Africa as a gene mutation that protected against malaria, a disease that's common there. And that's why most people with the disease are Black. So, he says covering the cost is a moral issue. The reason that there is sickle cell in the United States in substantial numbers is because we brought Africans over as slaves. This is a population obligation in the United States to get this right. The manufacturer for the more expensive therapy says it's priced appropriately because of the value it will add to the patient's lives. The company also points to the success it's had with other gene therapies. For Dr. McKinney in Aurora, he says reasonably and ethically priced therapy for sickle cell will change many lives. When those families come in for their first visit with us, we can at least provide them some hope that, you know, this is something that that we can potentially cure and get rid of. And it's something that some of his patients, like Mia Hilton, are strongly considering. She's still trying to decide if the treatment is right for her and if she could find the time for it. But she believes many people could benefit from it. They don't have to worry about sickle cell reactions anymore because there's more medicines on the market. And I feel like it's making it more fair. And then there's Xavius Himes, who we heard from at the start of this story. One year after his transplant, he has his mind made up about something else. Now that he's free from the pain of sickle cell, he's studying to become a doctor so that one day he can care for others with the disease. I'm Elaine Tassie, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.